In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good morning. So there's a cynical proverb in our culture that you're probably familiar with, and that is that no good deed goes unpunished, right? So no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, a few uh, a few weeks ago, I was at the Cervany Conference Center, and uh, that's the conference side at, at Camp Weed, and I was there for a diocesan meeting, and this lady walked in uh, to, to our meeting, and she was looked just kind of frazzled, you know, her, she was just confused, and she was trying to, didn't know exactly where she was going, and she hoped that we were her, her meeting, but she, she was obviously in the wrong place, and it was at a point in the meeting I didn't really need to contribute, so I hopped up, and I said, you know, I'll get you right to where you're going. I just want to be a good host to her. It looked like she didn't know she hadn't been there before, and so I, I um, grabbed her. I was making good conversation. I was just being really charming, and, and, uh, and, and I took her right to the office, and I, I, right there was, was uh, the guy who could get her where she was going. I was so uh, proud, of, I mean, I'm happy for her, and, uh, and, and so I left, and, and right as I was leaving, I, was, I walked out the door, and I was waving goodbye as I was walking away, and I walked right into a post, like, like this, just a little bit smaller. I mean, I just hit that thing so hard, my glasses flew off of my Head, they got. I had to get new frames. Uh, I bruised my forehead. I bruised my knee. It was uh, not my coolest moment ever. Um, and I was just trying to get the lady to the right place, you know. And uh, and and I just had that that phrase in my mind: "No good deed goes unpunished." You offer to help, and something uh, ends up costing you. Uh, we use that, that cultural proverb in, in sort of a funny way, don't we? But uh, maybe a little cynical, but we, we can drill down further in that emotion, that sentiment. And we can ask, you know, why does it actually seem that despite my best efforts, that life stays difficult? Or life sometimes even seems unfair? Or on a spiritual level, why, when I'm doing my best, to serve God, to be faithful to God, why does life seem to keep kicking me in the teeth? Now, I don't mean that God should have kept me from walking to the post. That's, that's kind of on me. Um, but I just mean that, that that little proverb, that no good deed goes unpunished, sort of gets us uh, to the question. B- below that proverb is the question that we all have found ourselves uh, asking at one time or another. You know, I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to be faithful to God. And so why are these difficult circumstances persistent? Our finances are too tight. Our child is off the rails. Our parents are aging. Or our parents are too strict. Our career isn't working out as planned. Our marriage is hard. Something very sad has happened. So what's up, God? Where are you? In this, why the struggle? And if you find yourself there this morning, and then this passage, this gospel passage from Mark, has some really good news for you. So, in our gospel passage, uh, Mark chapter 8, poor Peter must have felt at least like no good deed goes unpunished, right? So, just to give you a little context, uh, 
you, what you can't see is what happens right before this. I mean, just two or three verses earlier in Mark chapter 8, Peter has just declared his belief that Jesus is the Christ. Right? You remember this. This is a huge moment in Mark's gospel. It's a turning point, really. Uh, after a couple of years of the 12 disciples just sort of stumbling uh, around, wondering who this miracle man really is. Several instances where the disciples, uh, just, just, they're just not getting it. Peter seems to finally get it right. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, whose mouth so- does sometimes get him in trouble, he takes a risk. And he says out loud what they've been wondering in their hearts and minds for some time now. You are the Christ. Peter's saying that you, Jesus, you are the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel and the predictions of the prophets. You are the Christ. Good job, Peter. Well done, Peter. But see, what Peter expects that, this, that Jesus being the Christ means is a rise to prominence for all of them. And Jesus is going to be the military general who rallies Israel and overthrows the Roman occupiers. Jesus is going to be the new King David who ushers in an age of prominence and prosperity. Jesus will be the great high priest in the temple calling the people to exalt the Lord for this new golden age. Jesus will be a picture of success and adulation. And Jesus will need a cabinet. (laughs) He's going to need a a secretary of state. He's going to need a vice chancellor. And and Peter's got a pretty good idea of who Jesus might uh, might pick. And so Peter's got the right answer. You are the Christ. And Peter has a plan to get there. Our passage picks up right on the heels of Peter's confession as Jesus begins to tell them plainly what kind of Messiah he is going to be. He's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious elders and the priests and the scribes, who are the very ones that Peter imagined will be rallying around Jesus. In fact, Jesus says he will be killed and then will rise again. Peter doesn't hear the rise again part. He stopped listening at the word suffering. And Peter thinks he hears Jesus expressing discouragement and doubt. Peter thinks Jesus is saying, you know, I just don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this thing off. And so you can hear Peter saying to Jesus, thinking he's encouraging Jesus, hey, don't talk like that. We're not going to let that happen to you. I'm going to be your wingman. God's going to bless us with clear skies and smooth sailing. Success lies ahead. And who doesn't want a friend like that, right? Positive energy, optimism. But Jesus issues a stinging rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's intended good deed did not go unpunished. It seems harsh, doesn't it? unfair. But Jesus is lovingly, though not gently, he's tough lovingly. Is that a, can we make an adverb out of that? He's lovingly redirecting Peter's idea of just what God's blessing is going to be like. 
And we might pause here to reflect on our own ideas of God's blessing, of where God works in our lives. We want clear skies and smooth sailing. We will be right and quick to say that God is, uh, that has blessed us in those seasons. But where God usually does his work in us is not on the mountaintop, is it? It's in the valleys. It's in the struggles. In the places of weakness and waiting. It's in the places where we really need for him to work. I want parenting to be easier. I want pastoring to be easier. I, I don't want to have to make hard choices all the time. I don't want flu season to be ridiculous. I want our government to be unified and effective. I want our schools to be safe. I want cancer to be cured. I, could, I mean, I could keep going. But if you add all those things together, what do I really want? I want heaven. I want heaven. I mean, we just want to say that our hearts were, were made to long for that perfection. The frustration with the struggles is probably sometimes less about the struggles and more that our hearts were made for heaven. But we're not there yet. And so the struggles are the meeting place, the point of entry where the Holy Spirit gets in and is preparing us and creating in us clean hearts and renewing right spirits within us. When I was in college, uh, I heard Amy uh, give a talk, my wife Amy, and she gave a talk and she said that uh, God holds things behind his back. Because if he gave us the things, then we would just look at the things, but he holds us hold them behind his back so that we will look at him. And he may hold them behind his back until we want him more than the thing that he's holding. I thought, I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> you know, what we may cynically or, or even desperately assume is punishment. Jesus is saying may actually be right. According to God's plan. And I'll, I mean, the harder the struggle is, the more difficult it is to swallow that God may be working in or even willing, but certainly redeeming the difficulty. I mean, whatever it is, is it harder to believe or to get our minds around than the fact that the Son of God, uh, uh, the, the God of power and glory, would win by losing? That, that God incarnate gives life principally in his death. It's preposterous. And that's why Peter was trying to talk Jesus down. But in declaring that he will suffer and be rejected and killed, Jesus was not doubting his ability to pull off being the Christ. Jesus was outlining God's very difficult plan for just what kind of Messiah he was going to be. Redemption would come through difficulty. Success would look for all the world like failure. Glory would come on the other side of the cross. And that seems to be just how God chooses to work where we naturally, understandably run from any kind of affliction, God embraces it. 
He works in it. He uses it for his glory. Because we have a Savior whose greatest glory came in suffering and death, ours is a faith that is not shattered by suffering and death. In fact, ours is a faith that understands suffering and death. If God did not spare himself from his own earthly suffering, we can be sure that he will meet us and form us and bless us in ours. And isn't that such good news? If you're in a season of illness, if you're in a season of relational difficulty, if you're in a season of struggling to overcome addiction, if you're in a season of sadness or confusion or anger, if God did not spare himself from his own earthly suffering, we can be sure that he will meet us and form us and bless us in ours. That's the way of the cross. And I wish, you know, I've said it before, I wish that God said, I will keep you out of the valley of the shadow of death, but he doesn't. He said, I will walk with you through it. And so whatever it is for you, Friend, it is not a season that will be wasted. It is not a season that will end up being without purpose. Because he is a God of love, because he is a God who redirects our priorities from the things of man to the things of God, he calls us into these seasons or events of sharing in his suffering, into these cross-shaped valleys, so that he may do his work in us. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You just think how awful that would have sounded to Jesus' disciples. They didn't have any knowledge of Jesus' cross at this point. Jesus said, you, you have to grab a hold of an instrument of torture and death. It sounds terrible. And yet the God-man who would soon take up his own cross for the life of the whole world is unblinking in his conviction. Because if God did not spare himself from his own earthly suffering, we can be sure that he will meet us, inform us, and bless us in ours. Jesus says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's sake will save it. Whoever would do the sensible thing and run from affliction and difficulty will lose their lives, Jesus says. But whoever loses their lives for the sake of Christ, literally or figuratively, will in fact save their very life. It's life or death, Jesus says. Peter's plan looked like life. It would have led to death. Jesus' plan looked like death. It led to life. And it takes courage. Courage rooted in profound faith in a crucified Savior to look into cancer. Or to look into bankruptcy. Or to look into family estrangement. And rather than screaming, God, get me out of this. Ask, God, what are you doing in this? What are you teaching me in this? 
How can I set my mind not on the outcome that I want, but on you and the truth that you want me to learn? It takes profound courage rooted in faith in a crucified Savior. A hundred years ago, the English uh, author G.K. Chesterton Chesterton, uh, commented on this passage. He said this, Courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. Whoever would lose his life for my sake will save it is not a piece of mysticism for saints and heroes. It is a piece of everyday advice for sailors or mountaineers. It might be printed in an alpine guide or a drill book. The paradox is the whole principle of courage, even of quite earthly or quite brutal courage. A man who is cut off by the sea may save his life if he will risk it on the precipice. He can only get away from death by continually stepping within an inch of it. A soldier surrounded by enemies, if he is to cut his way out, needs to combine a strong desire for living with a strange carelessness about dying. He must not merely cling to life, for then he will be a coward and he will not escape. He must not merely wait for death, because then he will be a suicide and he will not escape. He must seek his life in a spirit of furious indifference to it. He must desire life like water, and yet drink death like wine. This quote this meant a lot to me for a lot of years. Courage, rooted in a profound faith in a crucified Savior. For if God did not spare himself from his own earthly suffering, we can be sure that he will meet us and form us and bless us in ours. And so be encouraged, dear ones. For it is not that your good deeds are not going unpunished, but that your Savior is inviting you to share with him in his own suffering. He is with you. And this season will not be wasted. Amen.